Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Compassion is central to the decluttering work of Matt Paxton, the host of Legacy List on PBS. Coming up, we'll hear about his book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, Declutter, Downsize, and Move Forward with Your Life. But first, Atlanta's Amy Ray helped shape modern folk music through her longtime band, the Indigo Girls, as well as her solo work. And tomorrow, July 12th, the acclaimed singer-songwriter is lending her immense knowledge of the genre to WABE's Sounds Like ATL, our monthly musical showcase at City Winery. So each month we explore a different theme, and with this month's focus on folk music, we could not be more honored to have Ray hosting the show. The concert will feature three Atlanta folk artists, Rising Appalachia, Elliot Bronson, and Joy Conaway. Before Ray hits the stage tomorrow, she joins me now via Zoom. Amy Ray, welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having me. I love the show. I love the show. So it ought to be fun. You're so sweet. We're so happy to have you hosting tomorrow. And let's just start out really broad. Folk music, like all music, is always evolving. So I was wondering, how would you describe the genre of folk music today? And do you think it's any different than when you first started in music? Well, when we started, you know, it's so funny because Emily and I really shied away from being categorized as folk because we were so intent on moving beyond that niche. I don't know why, actually. I think we had some hangups or something. But I think also we would play in folk, like folk rooms, quote unquote, rooms that were still like very dedicated to folk music. And they were much, the parameters were a little bit more strict, right? Like it was a little quieter and a little more tamed. Our crowd was like pretty rowdy and we would do things like play like long extended jams over all along the watchtower or something like that. I considered it folk, but I think we were going through a period of time when the scene had kind of moved away from that idea of folk music being like music of the people and Woody Guthrie and sort of the loud, you know, Sister Rosetta Tharp kind of music of the people sort of vibe, the Carter family, you know, people that would hoop and holler and play and stuff like that and we felt pulled towards more of the punk rock and the rock scene and wanted to play in those clubs because we we honestly just felt more kind of accepted in them bands like driving and crying would 
embrace us and let us play during their set. And but then we had a bunch of we had some women that really took us under their wing and started, I think, schooling us a bit and saying, you know, don't worry about categories and you know, like, just play for play your music and play for everybody. And you know, Caroline Aiken really helped us out a lot and Dee Dee Vote and I think helped us learn how to navigate like the chip on the shoulder and how not to worry about things like that. And it's funny because when you loosen up about that, you open up and the scene feels more open as well. And it's really just your perspective, you know? And I think people like Ani DeFranco really helped break that kind of wide open because she would call herself a little folk singer, right? And embrace it. And then she would do these really like raucous shows and really radical politics. And it really helped me see and sort of believe in that as a, as a genre that we could embrace. I think we felt a little isolated from it also being gay. And a lot of the folk scene that we were exposed to was very heterosexual and very kind of patriarchal at the time. And I think that also was hard for us. And, you know, we had to make our way, but I would say that at any point in time, you can find folk musicians that are breaking boundaries and cross-pollinating musical styles or musicians that consider themselves folk with the philosophy of like folk being of the people, you know, so it might be slightly different styles of music or blending different types of music, but it's always like music that's from communities and for communities and supposed to be accessible. And that's sort of how I view folk now, which is a similar way as to how I view like punk rock, you know, like to me, folk is like any music that's kind of broken down to its most basic element from a community, you know, so you could even say like the beginning is of hip hop. They were folk from that community that was creating it. Right. And so I kind of extend it in a different way than most people, but in a, just a purely musical sense, I think people think of folk as being very organic and, you know, a lot of songwriting that's um, storytelling and, and just things that people can access, you know, and feel that the music is speaking for them. But when I say that, I think that's all music, you know, so it's hard. It's very, it's really, it's a hard category. It's like trying to categorize like Americana, you know, or something like that. Right. But I think most people, when they think of folk, they think singer, songwriter, acoustic, you know, which is definitely what Emily and I, that's the basis of what we, you know, are. I mean, we go out on the road, just me and Emily, and we tour like that. And so we're like, we're folk musicians, you know, with influences from other places. Indeed. I love your wording about communities and folk music. And, you know, when you started out, you were from a very outsider community, and you guys became so mainstream and connected with so many people that I can only imagine probably did not share your world views. Did you always feel connected with the audiences that you were playing to? You know, we really did. I think, you know, Emily and I both had this yearning to connect, right? Like that was part of the point of Indigo Girls was connection. So we did not want things to stand in the way of that, honestly. We had a lot of perseverance on that level. (laughs) And even to a fault sometimes, I think, you know, like when women would approach us and ask us to play like separatist events that were, that did not allow men, we were, you know, at first we were like, we can't do that because we need to connect to our male audience too, instead of realizing the politics of that, you know, and understanding that separatist events are good, are good things, you know, in good spaces. But we also learned how to connect to a broader audience. And 
I mean, I guess I felt like I want people in the audience that are different from us. I mean, I don't want it to be all, you know, gay women of a certain age and a certain race, you know, because it's not real. Like, the, I mean, I love that part of our audience obviously has carried us through and has been the core of what we've done and, and our college audience when we started. But like... For me, I grew up, you know, I sort of grew up in an environment with a lot of people that felt differently from myself. I'm used to that. I think it's good for you to like have to challenge that and know to talk across the aisle and know how to talk about ideas with people that disagree. So for me, I always want people in the audience that are different, you know, even when it causes like my own internal strife sometimes or people say things that hurt my feelings, you know. And I think we always felt like, you know, we just want to bring our music to whoever will hear it and let them take what they want from it, you know. And it wasn't because we wanted to be really mainstream. I mean, we weren't really thinking about that as much as like, really our whole thing was like, how do we connect with people? Like generally speaking, that was like, the, the next step was always which gig would be a good way to like, you know, get through to people and who could we play with that we love playing with. And everything was on a kind of a human sort of level. And then I think REM, you know, they really took us under their wing and they're the ones that sort of launched us into a more of a mainstream audience. I mean, if you open for REM, you're really opening for a band that has a crowd completely different from what we had at the time. So that was a whole, you know, hallmark of like launching us into like this mainstream world where it, it was just a very different audience and bigger and a lot more people of different ilks you know and just it was good for us and and it really I think it made us really happy because we because we saw the fabric changing a bit you know and and diversity I mean I think the one thing we've struggled with probably is trying to understand how to have an audience that's more racially diverse in an intention without being I don't know disingenuous or something you know and in that way you just have to like do your thing and and do your work and do your activism and and open the gates and see what comes in, you know. I guess it's like a marketing thing almost, you know, where it's like for so long, white people listen to country and folk and people of color don't or something, you know. <laughs> it's like all marketing. It's not, none of it's true, right? Totally. But we all bought into it, you know, a long time ago. And because of that, we've had so many barriers to people that could be breaking out, you know. And finally, that's changing, I, I think, in country especially, but I think, you know, and Tracy Chapman certainly pioneered a lot for us. But I think uh, these are all the things that you think about when you're playing music, I guess, if you're an indigo girl. For sure. And your lifelong collaboration with Emily is nothing short of phenomenal. What is the secret to your longevity? Uh, I just would have to say space, I mean, and respect. And it's like a marriage, really. You know, it's like, you have to give each other autonomy and space and respect to the other person. And and you got to know that the things that make you so different from each other are probably the things that create the magic, you know, of what you do. So that's basically where we where, what we try to do. And you know, we've just always known since we started playing together in high school that what we had as a group for us felt you know, like magic or something. And so we always respected it. Mm. It wasn't it that we were like, this is magic for the people. It was like, it was magical for ourselves. <laughs> you know, we were, we were like high school kids. And what we felt when we were playing together was like, 
this incredible joy of harmony, you know? And so it's just in the beginning, it was like, how can we make sure that this always feels this good, right? Like, how can we always take steps that we don't lose this, you know, passion and feeling for what we're doing? And that's basically how we've operated our whole careers, which has been over 40 years now, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, we're lucky. There's no, there's no other way. It's Some of it's just luck, to be honest. <laughs> if you're just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is musician Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls. So aside from being half of the Indigo Girls, you also have your own band, the Amy Ray Band. I was wondering, when you sit down to write new music, do you have an outlet in mind on the front end, or does what you're writing sort of start to dictate what outlet you'll use to present it? Usually what I'm writing will dictate the outlet. If I'm far enough along into like a group of songs, like for a project that would be Indigo's or a project that would be like my own band, then I might start writing and like intentionally for that just because there might be a record coming up or I might want to finish a group of songs all in kind of the same vein. But typically when I'm writing and I'm in like a writing sort of time of like, you know, I'll write for, I guess, every other day for eight months or something and then I'll take a break. Wow. I usually just write, you know, and it is pretty obvious where the song's going to end up by the time I get partway through it. I guess I just hear who is the collaborator in it, you know. I hear Emily or I hear my band or I hear something really different and I don't know where it goes, so I just (laughs) stick it in another pile. (laughs) Well, you have a new record coming out in September and in previous releases you've showcased your diverse range of musical loves from punk to country. What should we expect from the new album? It's country-esque I guess <laughs> I mean it's it's a country record but it's got some traditional kind of country I've got some players on it that are from like the bluegrass world Sarah Jarose is on it and Allison Brown but then I've got like Brandy Carlisle on it on more of a kind of a pop sort of Dusty Springfield meets pop music and then I've got like a gospel choir on a song I did like I recorded like a I wrote a gospel song and brought in a friend of mine who really knows gospel to kind of help me figure it out, (laughs) what I was doing. You know, so it runs the gamut a little bit, but it's definitely in the, I would put it in the genre of country and maybe with a punk flair here and there. (laughs) Do you have a title picked out? Yeah, it's called If It All Goes South. Fantastic. Well, let's (laughs) talk about tomorrow's concert at City Winery. In general, yeah. What do you think this concert does to showcase diversity in folk music, as we were talking about earlier? Well, this lineup definitely showcases diversity because you got Elliot Bronson, who is, I consider, he's very organic. He's um, kind of a songwriter's songwriter. I mean, he's, he's adored by many songwriters I know, and his audience is just, you know, in love with him. Yeah. 
and he is very, I think he's from a folk tradition with some country and blues mixed in there. I'm not sure what he would say. I know he likes a lot of different kinds of music, just knowing him. But when you listen to his music, it strikes me as it's very organic. And, you know, he's done things like record to tape. And, you know, he's, you know, made very kind of old-fashioned sort of methods into what he does to, like, capture that organic sound. And then Rising Appalachias, they are such a cross-pollination. I mean, they're truly folk of all the world folk, you know, of world music folk. That's really different. I mean, those those two women pop up, you know, in, in very diverse places to play music and to gather sounds, I would say. I am resilient. I trust the movement. I negate the chaos. Uplift the negative I'll show up at the table Again and again and again I'll close my mouth And learn to listen So they've incorporated kind of an Appalachian root with world music, to me. I mean, that's how I see them. Oh, I totally agree. And then Joy Conway, I mean, I've heard her play folk songs, acoustic, you know, I've heard, like stripped down acoustic songs, and then full on what I would consider to be almost like R&B pop. So she, to me, is a cross-pollination and and she has joy in her songs as she is named, aptly named. When the trees are green, when the birds fly free, when the city shines, when a cloudy day brings the rain my way and the city cries. See, this is how it starts, just one song. And now you're on my mind all night long when the flowers bloom. So it's a great, I mean, it's a very diverse lineup and that's what's cool, you know, about this series actually. When this series started, I can't remember, it was like the soul one or the hip hop one or one of them that started that I noticed and was clued into and I was like, this is a great idea. (laughs) I just remember thinking, what a great idea. Because I feel like, you know, Atlanta, some people know one scene or another. They don't always know all of them. And to have like, a show that's at the same venue and it's kind of a regular thing and then it's shown on TV as well introduces people to these different genres but in a way that shows them the diversity within the genre and that's really the best way to do it so I think it's a great idea you know I just I was like this is this is a a really good thing for Atlanta. Amy Ray will host this month's Sounds Like ATL concert tomorrow evening at City Winery. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Matt Paxton, host of Legacy List on PBS, brings compassion to decluttering with his book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it is great to have you along. When 26-year-old Matt Paxton helped an elderly lady from church downsize her large house, he didn't know it would be a transformative experience. But in fact, he later decided that that was what he wanted to do with his life, to help people simplify their lives by realizing the value of their memories. The host of the popular Emmy-nominated PBS show Legacy List and a 13-year veteran of Hoarders on A&E, now Paxton has written a book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. When Lois spoke with Paxton via Zoom in March, he began by explaining why he wanted to author the book. Well, I kept getting the same questions over and over and over And I thought, gosh, if this many people are asking me these questions, I probably need to get it down on paper. And it was also right at the beginning of the pandemic. And I thought, gosh, I'm never going to have time like this again. Mm. I should really get it down on paper. Well, it also reads as something of a memoir in addition to being a decluttering guide. You have been a decluttering and organizing expert for over 20 years. Matt, what are some of the unusual examples of hoarding that you have seen up close? Oh, every time I think I've seen it all, I see something new. And I always say I'm very lucky to have seen these things because it gives you the extremities that you can then write a book about, right? I had a guy that had an airplane he had reassembled in his basement, and he liked to dry out his clothes, his shirts, on the wing. (laughs) And he said, nothing dries a shirt like an airplane wing. I was like, I'll I'll take your word for it. It gives new meaning to air dry. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a full plane in his basement. He had taken the whole thing apart and put it back together in his basement. How big was his basement? It was a, about a 30-foot long wing. I mean, it was it was really fascinating. Engineering-wise, it was fascinating how he had done it. He had done it by himself, you know, day by day, screw by screw. And people often forget that hoarders are incredibly intelligent, like intelligent at a, at a much higher level than the average person. And it was, you know, finding things like that is, is when you start to find that out. I found, gosh, I mean, you find art, you find, of course, books. Books is always the number one thing they find because in books, it's intelligence and information. And so most hoarders are incredibly intelligent. So they, they see the most value in books. Gosh, I mean, just a couple of years ago, we found a Picasso and two Salvador Dali's in an attic. Oh, what became of them? 
the Picasso was not a good Picasso. At the end of his life, Picasso would draw anything, like anything. <laughs> and he was just tr trying to get a date, you know. He was he was a bit of a ladies' man at the end of his life. And so what he would... Oh, all his life. Yeah, yeah, I know. And so what he was notorious for was he would take a group of people out in New York City. He would take them all to dinner. And then he would say, oh, well, I've got the check. And he would he would write a check. And then he would draw something on the check knowing that the restaurateur would not cash it <laughs> because it's a Picasso. And so, but, you know, part of me thinks, well, that's kind of cheap. And then the other part of me is like, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know, and this was one of those checks. And it was just an I had heard about it. I'd never seen one. So it was really kind of an honor to find it. But the, the dollies were, were straight up original dollies. And um, we had to call the lawyers. We had to call an appraiser. We had to call, you know, they had to be proper. You, you didn't even want to pick them up. You don't want to touch them because you don't want to mess them up. And those, uh, of course, at the end of the day, significantly changed that family's life in a financial situation. And, you know, Matt, I would think this also would confirm a hoarder's reason for hoarding, which is that you might have something really valuable amongst all that <laughs> stuff you can't discern. Correct. And I almost wish I hadn't given that example for that exact reason, <laughs> right? Because you want people to think, hey, the stuff's just, it's just stuff. It's holding you back. But unfortunately, yeah, sometimes we do find really financially valuable stuff. And where in my career in the last really 10 years, I've transitioned a lot harder to, hey, let's focus on the memories, the emotional value, not the financial value. Because although a lot of times I find, you know, I do find really valuable financial things, 90% of the time, it's just stuff that takes up space. Indeed. This book is deeply personal, and I was hoping you would share how the aftermath of your dad's unexpected death at 52 led to what would become your life's career. Yeah, my dad dying, you know, it made me clean up my first house. And, you know, for any kid, I was a kid, I was, I was 20 three, 24 when he died. And, uh, you know, your dad's your hero. And that's what you want for any kid to believe is that your dad's your hero. And, and my dad was my hero. But it's funny, my dad was an entrepreneur. And so he would love nothing more than the fact that this gave me a job. I mean, my dad, I, I, I guarantee you, he's smiling in heaven right now. I'm like, yeah, man, here he is. He's been doing this for 20 years. He's killing it. He's on TV. He's on radio. Like, my dad would love this. And so it just because of who my dad was, it does bring me pride to know that it gave me a career and it gave me purpose and I've been able to help thousands of people doing it. But yeah, I mean, at the time it was devastating. I mean, I, I lost my dad and then my stepfather and then two grandfathers all within about 18 months. And I was left with a lot to figure out and a lot to clean up. And it did eventually, you know, create this career, but it was, I was just a lost soul at the time. And I appreciate you saying, you know, it's an emotional book because it is. I mean, I really, there's a lot of, lot of people and books out there that just give you tips to clean. And I just flat out from my 20 years experience, I don't believe it's about the tips. We all know how to clean. We can't clean because we're stuck emotionally, because we loved these people that are attached to the stuff. And so I, I, I did take a right turn and I said, I'm going to write an emotional book. I'm not going to write a book about tips because there's probably already enough books out there that give you just tips. Yeah, and you also provide a lot of kindness in it for your readers. You set out guidelines as steps, 
And these are chapter headings, nine of them. Yeah. Step one is uncovering the stories behind the stuff. Why is this the first step? Well, stuff holds us back from living. And I've been lucky enough to help thousands of families. And I've seen so many families. They want more for their their adults. They want more for their their ancestors. And and oftentimes the the people over 80 are, are, they don't want to get rid of their stuff. And so it holds them back from living. And so I say, it's, it's not the stuff that holds you back. It's the stories, the emotions attached to that stuff. And so I really just try to push that, Hey man, if you tell these stories, what I've seen in my life is the more you tell these stories at the beginning, the easier it is to get rid of the little smaller things that don't actually matter as much. And that's when it comes back to that emotional value versus financial value. Why do you think that pain is the underlying reason people hoard? You mentioned intellect a moment ago. In the book, you write that pain is the greatest reason for hoarding. Yeah, hoarders, it's something they do currently. And let me, let me say that twice. Hoarding is a current situation. It's not a lifelong thing. And the reason I say that is I had a lady one time get up on stage. I was giving a speech and this lady stands up in the crowd and she goes, I'm a hoarder today. I wasn't 10 years ago and I won't be in 10 more years. She goes, I also like pizza. I'm a wonderful dancer. I'm a really good mathematician. Like she gives me this list of all the amazing things about her. And she goes, I'm just struggling right now with hoarding. And the place erupted. It was like a movie. People screamed and they're like, yes. And and she goes, stop calling me a hoarder. I'm just someone that struggles with it. And I was like, yes, ma'am. And it was awesome. I mean, I could not script it better. But what I, interaction with so many hoarders, I just learned that, you know, something bad happened to them. And either they lost somebody, someone died, there was a divorce, or a lot of times it was abuse, physical, sexual, or emotional, oftentimes emotional. And what I learned is they're all hurting. And so they go to fill that void with stuff, right? Their happiness and their self-worth, they're trying to to build that up with stuff. And I learned in my own life, I'm very open about it in the book. Um, I've had a lot of struggles myself. We all, when things are bad, we look for happiness and self-worth often in the wrong places, right? Some people do it in, in exercise. Some people do it in alcohol. Some people do it in drugs. Some people do it in faith. Some people do it in work. And I'm lumping all of those positive and negative things into one pile because we all look to fill that void with something better. And that is what hoarders do. They just do it with stuff. And so I just, I, compassion is probably my biggest tool and my biggest strength. And the reason is I had decades that I needed that compassion. I mean, my twenties were a disaster. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm proud and not proud of it, you know, but, but I'm lucky to be in a place where I can use all those mistakes to then teach other people to be compassionate and caring towards the loved ones in their lives that are suffering. And a lot of times that compassion is needed when you're going through your stuff because it's a Mm. frustrating thing, man. It's very frustrating. Yeah. Looking at stuff forces you to confront what you've been through. I got a great example of that. I had two sisters, let's say they were 65 to 75 and they were fighting over a piano. Neither of those two ladies played the piano. They were fighting over the piano, who got it? And finally, the one sister just said, I don't want you to have it because dad wanted you to have it. Dad loved you more than me. Ooh. And I just stayed quiet. And it's just me in the front row of these two 
very mature adult women that are acting like teenagers. And they were really going at it. And then finally she goes, well, when you kissed Tommy, blah, blah. And, she's, and I'm like, whoa, wait, back up. Who's Tommy? Tommy was a boyfriend in high school of one of the sisters. And apparently the younger sister kissed the boyfriend too. These are 70 year old women fighting over a boy from 55 years ago. <laughs> and what it really came down to is the two sisters have been mad for 55 years about this dumb boy named Tommy. And it's coming out on a piano. And I said, all right, get your phone out. So we look, we went on Facebook and we looked up Tommy and uh, the years had not been kind to Tommy. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I said, really, ladies, this is what we're fighting over. And they finally started laughing and they had just had an emotional breakthrough. Like they finally, it wasn't even their dad. It was just a silly boy named Tommy, but they're both of their, their feelings had been hurt for, for 50 years, you know? And they finally, they're like, oh God. Can we just get rid of the piano? Neither one of them really wanted it. They just, <laughs> they just didn't want the other one to have it. And that's when you really realize, uh, and, and, and anyone listening right now has a, an embarrassing story like that as well, right? I did it myself. When I got divorced, I kept a dish because I just, I just didn't want my ex-wife to have that dish, you know, which was so silly. And I eventually gave it to her later in life because it was like, I don't, even, I don't even know what this dish is, some French dish. I didn't even know what it was for, you know? And it was just spite, right? And so you do embarrassing things at points in life because you're hurt or you're or you're happy. And a lot of times we hold on to stuff for those two reasons. We either are hurt or we're just so love that person that we hold on to it. But again, none of this is about the stuff. It's all about the emotion. What patience you have, Matt. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Matt. Paxton of Legacy List on PBS. His new book is Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff. Step two involves defining your finishing line. How does this give purpose to getting rid of stuff? Okay, so the step two, defining your finish line, that is really, it's a trick, right, to the reader. So many of my clients will call me and say, okay, I'm ready to start downsizing. I go, great. Where are you going? They go, oh, I don't know. I'm going to move someday. I go, great. I can't clean your house until I know where you're going. And they're like, well, why? And I go, well, why would I pack you? You know, how can I pack you for vacation if I don't know if you're going to the beach or you're going skiing? They're like, well, what do you mean? And I learned that it, if you pack without actually knowing where you're going, then it's, it's actually procrastination especially when it's an end of life pack, right? When you're going to that next, your last location for moving, if you're moving out of your house at 50 years, you have to be clear on where you're going. Because if not, you're going to pack up things you might need, or you're just going to get rid of everything, or you're going to get fully stuck. And so I tell everybody, I want to know what that plan is. Where are you going? Are you going to Florida to live closer to kids? Are you going to a community where you have independence? Are you going somewhere for healthcare? Whatever that is, that location, I want to know where. And then here's the key. I want to know the why. And this, uh, I learned this from my partner. She's a minimalist. And, and in minimalism, they really focus on the why. And this is something that's been new to my, to really my skill set is focusing on this why, because the why keeps you from quitting, right? Decluttering and downsizing and organizing. Other than exercising, it's the easiest thing to quit because we can just shut the door or we can shut the drawer, right? And so as soon as it gets hard, we can quit. But if you put the why in front of you, so like if it's, hey, I want to be I'm moving to an adult child's home. That's the where. The why is I want to be closer to my grandkids. 
or I'm moving to Florida because there's better health care. Well, the why is I want to live longer. Right? And I actually write that why down and I put it on the wall in front of me in the room I'm working on because the why is what will keep you from quitting. And that's why it's so important. Matt, what is the 10-minute sweep? 10-minute sweep is the best way to get started. <laughs> so many people just think, oh my gosh, I got this huge garage and it's going to take me three weekends. And so they don't even start. The number one question for me is, where do I get started? How do I get started? And so I just say, just pick any area for 10 minutes. And I want you to clean every night for 10 minutes. It may not even be organizing. You might just be cleaning up the kitchen sink. I don't really care. I just want it to be small. I want it to be achievable and I want it to be consistent. And so I, I say 10 minutes, sweep, clean every night for 10 minutes, do that for a couple weeks. And, and, and believe it or not, sometimes, I mean, you can do the drunk drawer, you could do half a bookshelf, really the space doesn't matter. A lot of times I say, just do the dishes every night for a week. I just clean, just go to bed with a dry sink. If you do that, you've gotten the habit and the consistency of doing it. So it really, it's not about what you've achieved. It's that you've gotten started and you've achieved something. And that becomes a habit. What are some of the rules for taking baby steps? Well, start small. Okay. You've got to be able to achieve it. So oftentimes I'll say like that drunk drawer, the top left corner of your kitchen, it's often filled with Bed Bath & Beyond coupons that are expired and uh, rubber bands right? and, pen, and pens that don't work right? and keys that you don't know where they go for. Those, that's an easy drawer that you can, you can get done in a short amount of time. And so it's important to know that you can achieve because if, if you pick the, you know, your 5,000 stacks of photos, you're not going to finish that in the first week and it's going to wear you down and you're going to quit. And so I always say start really small. I think junk, junk mail is a great place to start. If your dining room table has started to fill up with junk mail, that's a great place to start because it gives you a, a big visual win when you finish it. And so it's got to be achievable, not heavily emotional because if it's too heavy an emotion, you won't get through it. And you, and you just want to start small in, in time as well as space. And if you do that, you start to get excited about cleaning. And then the one I always talk about is tell the stories. The more stories you tell, the more excited you'll be about this. Matt Paxton, host of the Emmy-nominated PBS show Legacy List, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. We'll return to more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's return now to Lois's conversation with Matt Paxton, host of Legacy List on PBS. His new book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, is more than just a guide to decluttering. It's a personal and empathetic look into why we hold on to objects that no longer serve us well. The book is divided into actionable steps, and here Paxton explains step five, what to keep and how to create a legacy list. This is my favorite part. So Legacy List is the sh name of my TV show on, yes. on public television. We air and, it. Yeah, you do. And you got, and thank you so much. By the way, <laughs> last, last time I talked to you, it was just a new show on TV. And now we are Emmy nominated. I've, I've found out that the emotions really do, you know, pay off. But the Legacy List is a list of five or six items that matter most to you and your family to tell that family story. 
And I ask people to do that first before you go through the list of what you're going to give people really think through like, you know, for me, it was, it was really about my dad. Like I wanted my dad to live forever. My dad had a 4,000 square foot house and I couldn't keep it all. I was a kid. I lived in an apartment. I lived in a one bedroom apartment and I couldn't afford storage. So I couldn't keep all this stuff. So I really, you know, even at an early age, I had to create this legacy list of what are the few items that matter to me to keep my dad's story going. And as I've aged and matured, I've learned that families need that too. And when you pick these five or six items, you pick these five or six items, then it sets kind of a foundation for what's important to your family story and to your story. And what you'll end up finding is once you've created that legacy list, you really have that just firm amount of items that matter. And then you you don't keep as much of the little stuff because you've already you know, told so many amazing stories about the loved ones in your family. And so then you don't need a hundred items from grandma. You've got the one on your legacy list that matters. I think if I can, can I tell the, my, my favorite legacy list item? I hope you would. It was a cookbook from my mom and my parents were divorced when I was six. So I, I never really knew my parents together. And so it wasn't really a bad thing. Right. And so when my dad got sick, my mom went to his parents. I mean, so, so imagine this being divorced from a man for 20 years. And then you go visit his mother and father. And she got all of the recipes from his side of the family. So my great grandmother, my grandmother's, and even then my mom's recipes. And then she went to her side and she wrote down all the recipes from her mother and her great grandmother. And then all the old ladies at church filled in the rest of the recipes. And my mom gave this book to my dad right before he passed away. So it was all that my dad loved books. So, and he loved family stuff. And so this was a gift my mother gave to my dad at the end of his life. Of course, I ended up getting it, you know, soon thereafter. But now fast forward, this is a book in my mother and grandmother's handwriting of all the recipes I ate as a child growing up. And fast forward to Thanksgiving this year in Atlanta, Georgia, 20 years later, I'm with my stepkids and we're making my great grandmother's apricot pies. And I'm getting to tell my young stepsons about all these amazing people in my family. And they're listening. They're actually listening to these stories. And to, to get an eight-year-old boy to listen to anything <laughs> is, is challenging, especially a woman that he will never meet. But they hung on to the stories and they loved it. And it's all because of a cookbook. That is a legacy list item. That's so beautiful. Your mom sounds extraordinary. You write that she also helped you clean your dad's house after he passed away. And having been divorced for 20 years, she certainly had no obligation to do that. No, my, my mom is an amazing mother. I, I was lucky to be raised by a lot of powerful, strong, really amazing women. And now I'm still surrounded by that with my my fiance and everybody in my life, you know, I'm very, very lucky there. My mom really, yeah, it's funny, the older you get, you realize how selfless your parents were. I guess you don't understand it at that time. It was kind of a, it didn't even, wasn't a big deal to me when my mom did that. But yeah, 20 years later, after myself going through a divorce, it's like, yeah, you're right. That was amazing that my mom helped me clean that first house out. And it's just who she is. And I hope that I, you know, I hope anyone listening will be, be, give that kind of compassion and that kind of love because my mom was there for me. She wasn't there for my dad. She was there for me. And I hope I always treat all of my kids that way. Matt, I have a confession now. Oh, my gosh. I hadn't thought about asking you this, but now I'm going to. My mom passed away 
almost 12 years ago. And I still have a bottle of the fragrance she wore. Oh, I love it. And every now and then, I'll just take off the cap. What do you think of my hanging on to that bottle of Chloe? I love it. That is absolutely a wonderful legacy list item because there's, for me, oh, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, to me, there's two things, smells and then signatures, like our parents' signatures, right? Their handwriting. That's always deeply personal for me. And I love when I find, like just the other day, I found somebody mailed me from my old church. They were cleaning out the music room and they found my grandfather's music and it was his handwriting and I saw his, he, 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 did this big extravagant L and he, cause he thought he wanted everybody to see it. Right. He was a great guy. And, um, but very confident for a man of the, of World War II. <laughs> and, uh, and it was his handwriting and I looked at it and I realized he was 14 when he wrote it when I looked at the date. So it was two years before he went to the war, but I love the handwriting. Right. And so it's funny you say that, like, I love that you have something that smells like your mother because scents scents are so personal, deeply personal. And I've actually, we come across that but a lot. But what would your fiancé say about well, it? Well, my fiancé, the minimalist, that's sitting right next to me right now. She would choose love over simplicity any day. I mean, what an amazing... Actually, it's a great item because it's small and then really powerful, right? Like, I mean, listen to the emotion in your voice when you talked about it. Oh. You're thinking about your mom. Yeah, but I also was thinking, do I need what was probably a 15 or 18 year old bottle of chloe on my shelf well we don't need anything in life except each other okay (laughs) so get rid of that theory right there but it sure makes you enjoy life better one thing about minimalism and simplicity it's not about starving yourself of memories in life it's about making space for that and so what I, what I would argue is you did the right thing by emptying your mother's house and getting rid of the 99% of the stuff that didn't matter, but you kept and, and saved for the right thing. I mean, what an awesome gift to have that, to be able to smell that. And someone's listening right now and they're saying, yep, my grandfather smelled like X or Y. And like, I'm thinking of the, my grandfather's aftershave. It was, you know, my, my grandfather, he was a farmer and a preacher. And he um, would shave on Saturday nights if he needed it or not. That's what he always said. <laughs> but it was the only time he, he showered and shaved was Saturday nights. And I can, I can smell his, his aftershave right now. It's a very distinct thing that brings that memory back. And just because you shared that story, there's a lot of people listening right now thinking about what someone they loved smelled like. And that's awesome. Like you just shared a legacy list item and you told the story. You did exactly what I talk about in this book. And now people are going to hear that and they're going to, they're going to have a really fond memory. And so I love it. Like, that's awesome. But you made space in your life to have that memory versus keeping so much stuff that that's in a box and you never see it. You never enjoy it. So I actually say you did the right thing. Oh, thank you. Step nine is about moving and you titled the chapter move forward in a very upbeat way. What's the ultimate takeaway from this section, Matt? Okay. So the part we haven't told is I fell in love halfway through writing this book. I started the book and I was in Virginia with my three sons. I was a single dad in Virginia. And I finished the book in Atlanta, Georgia with my fiance and my now seven kids. I fell in love halfway through writing this book. And I actually had to rewrite it because I had a lot of tips. I had a lot of 
information, a lot of advice, but I didn't have the emotion. And what happened is when I had to move, I got really scared and I got really nervous. I had this thing called FOMO, fear of missing out. I was afraid of missing out on the stuff. I was afraid of missing out on the people in my life where I was moving from. And it got to the point where I almost didn't move. I called my girlfriend at the time and I just said, I don't know if I can do this. This is too hard. And she goes, well, I'm here in Georgia. And if you want to be with me, that's where you got to go. And I had to make the decision. Am I going to stay in one place with all my stuff? Or am I going to risk it, get rid of a lot of stuff and go somewhere new and have that potential life with her? And this is very dramatic. I know that, but I'm fine with it. And um, obviously I chose to go. I took a leap of faith and to move forward because I say move forward because and, and the reason, by the way, the reason I rewrote the book was I realized a lot of my advice without the emotion was kind of malarkey, right? <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't realize I've been given advice for 20 years, but I hadn't had to follow it. It's only you have to follow it. And you have to go through the emotions that my clients go through every day. It changed everything. And so that's why I rewrote the book the way you, you see it with the tips and in, in chronological order and all that. But at the end of the day, the punchline of the book is real simple. You're going to have to make a decision to either stay in the past or move forward. And the stuff allows us to blame and, and not take that step forward. If you're contemplating moving, it's because you do want to change or, or something's making you change. Right? But I put that word forward very intentionally on purpose. It's a reason it's there because if you can let go of the stuff, you can keep the memories, you can go anywhere. And think about that in life, right? I don't care what age you're at. Life's still there and there's still new things to do and there's still new experiences to do and you can move forward with it. And so I did, I took a leap and I did it and man, did it pay off. Someone asked me the other day, well, what stuff could you not let go of? And I'm like, I don't, I have no idea. I don't remember, but I remember it was really hard, but I, I cannot tell you what item it was. So I sure don't miss it um, because I'm too busy with this new life that I have. I got seven kids, you know, I, I, ended up, I ended up writing a book. I mean, I, I, my life is so much better that I took a chance and moved. And I'm so glad I didn't just quit and stay. You also address the emotion, really, what can be the trauma of moving for much older people and provide a list, all kinds of resources about different agencies and different types of retirement communities. It, it, it's very detailed. And you are quite generous, Matt, in sharing your resources in an appendix. Would you describe how you present this? Yeah. So the appendix is, there's two parts of it. The first part is the top 100 items that people always ask me about. A little bit of this is selfish, I will be honest with you, Lois. I get 10 emails a day about these first 100 items. And so I was thinking, well, if I put this in here, I won't get as many emails because I feel obligated <laughs> to write people because people ask me for help and I'm helping them on TV. And so if I don't help them, it's really not fair. And so I was hoping the book would help with that. And what it is, is the top 100 items, I put them in alphabetical order. If you either want to have them appraised, you want to sell them, you want to donate them, or you want to get rid of them, it has all the places you can go to do that. So whether it be stamps or coins, or jewelry, or shoes, like anything. It's all in there. What I've learned is I used to hold these things into myself because it was, it was my business, you know, so I make, so I support my family. But there's so much, so many people that need help. I'm not losing business by giving you my tips, right? I'm actually just helping more people. And I've learned in life 
if you try to make money, it usually doesn't work out. But if you help people, it normally does work out. And so when I was writing the book, I was like, okay, I got to stick to that theory. Just focus on helping people and, and life will work out. And so when I did that, I said, I got to give it, I got to give everything. I got to give like no more secrets. I got to give all my advice. And so I put that in there and then I put all my resources. And so the reality is if you're going to do it by yourself, you were going to do it anyway. So I might as well give you everything I got. So the second part of this, this appendix is every company that I've ever worked with from, from junk removal to professional move managers to moving companies, even to cleaning supplies. It's all in there. So if you're thinking of, of tackling this yourself, the book will pretty much walk you through everything you need to do and then also give you the emotional support to do it. And then it gives you each chapter has a story. Matt Paxton, author and host of the Emmy-nominated PBS show Legacy List. More information about his book, Keep the Memories, Lose the Stuff, is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., author Vanessa Riley tells us about her new release, Sister Mother Warrior. Plus, we'll hear about Woodstock Arts Theater's upcoming musical, James and the Giant Peach. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from W-H-Y-Y and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.